With Capella University's FlexPath learning format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show on the Choose Yourself Network. Today on the James Altucher Show. You want to embrace things rather than try and fight them. Work with things rather than try and run for them or prohibit them. So tracking is coming, AI is coming, robots are coming. Accept that it's coming and then work with it. The best way to change technology is by embracing it. What should I do now, today, to dip my toes into the this stream of the future that's coming along? So I've got Kevin Kelly once again on the podcast. Kevin, welcome to the show. It's my pleasure to be here. And now we're doing it in person. Last time you were on the podcast, we did it over Skype. And I always like doing these in-person this is the first time we're meeting, but I have to tell you, and again, by way of bio, I'll just say you were the, the founding editor of Wired, you worked on the Whole Earth Catalog, you uh, have done a million interesting things then, since then, you've had such an eclectic career. The last time you were on the podcast, we talked about your graphic novel, The Silver Cord. Uh, if people go to kk.org, they see a million of your intelligent, like, genius posts. You were the... I always refer to the thousand true fans mm -hmm. blog post that you have, which basically says if you have a thousand true fans, you could essentially make a living out of it. Uh, one of the concepts that came up, it was really fascinating to me, that came up in our last podcast, which maybe we could talk briefly about it right now, is you basically said if you totally went broke and had nothing, that would be fine with you because you had that had happened to you before. You could live with it. You would be, you would. I don't know, get in a sleeping bag and sleep in the park or whatever. <laughs> like, and I just, more than all the futuristic stuff you did, yeah. I think that is the one that was the most calming concept. Like, okay, all this future stuff's happening. That feels overwhelming to me. But the fact that if I lose everything, which I've done many times before, the fact that there is a possibility to survive and be happy was an interesting concept. And I just wanted to ask you, like, if right now, if you went totally broke, would you survive? <laughs> Absolutely. And, and, and I think this is actually one of the best things you can learn when you're young, which is one of the reasons why, say, uh, hitchhiking or traveling around the world is so beneficial, is that you can get to that very close to that point where you don't have very much, and you realize that, in fact, you probably don't really need that much to survive. That you, If you could live on rice and beans and a sleeping bag, you can live on anything. And that that is liberating in many ways because if you think about something you're going to take a risk on, you think, well, what's the worst possible thing that could happen? Well, I may have to live in a sleeping bag and eat rice and beans. But I've done that, so that's not so bad. So I'll take the chance. It's funny because for the past year or so, I've basically been living out of Airbnbs. <laughs> yeah. And you live in a different place Every week or so, you learn, I can only live out of one bag. So if I bought a shirt, I had to get rid of a shirt or whatever. Right. Uh, so I did kind of trim all my belongings and throw almost everything out. But but now, actually, I just finally moved into a place. So we'll see if I can handle having <laughs> two, two shirts. It's almost scary, <laughs> like having more belongings. Like, I don't know what to do. 
But um, but I want to talk to you a little bit. You have a book coming out in June called The Inevitable, Understanding the 12 Technological Forces That Will Shape Our Future. We're going to talk about that in this podcast a little bit, and we're also going to talk about it in another one as the book gets closer to publication. But what I really am interested in is how do you get the mental framework to start predicting the future? And you did a video about this once, and I'm going to kind of list the things you mm-hmm. stated mm-hmm. and um, about the, the techniques you use to predict the future. Because I, I think being predictive is very difficult. Like you look at, you know, people on the financial news shows, n- zero of the predictions come true, like out of what they say. <laughs> but you've been very good. And since since uh, Wired was an amazing magazine because it was so predictive and so mm-hmm. accurate. So the first thing you mentioned in this video is follow the free. And mm-hmm. I don't know what that means. Yeah. So, so let me just say about predicting just in general. And, and that is that if you read science fiction, um, which is really about talking about the future, you, if you read enough of it, you realize that actually most of the stuff is talking about the present with a little kind of um, a future spin. Basically, they're projecting the present into the future. And so the best I think we can do is really to be really good predictors of the present. That's almost difficult enough to really understand sort of what's going on because whatever happens in the future is going to be an extension of now. But just even understanding what's happening right now is really what most of the prediction is about. That's so true because look at, like, for instance... The pre- I'll just uh, the presidential election. Every there's all these you know people on TV talking about who won the debate, who won the. De- no one actually knows who won anything, who's going to win, who, what issues are important. Like no one actually knows. So how do you predict the present, and, and and how is that related to this concept of follow the free? Right. So so the idea of following the free, and and what I'm trying to do in all these little tricks or heuristics is to be really good at observing what's going on now, so we can look at where that's going. And what I've noticed over the years is that often some of the most important and valuable things in the future, the biggest businesses, often start off in the realm of being completely in the free, meaning that in terms of like people gifting it or doing it for nothing or doing it for fun or doing it below the radar. In some ways, it's not commercial in the beginning. So another way of saying that is that the biggest things that will be commercially successful We'll start in a non-commercial way. Look to where people do things for passion or for duty or something where money's not involved because that is more likely going to be the future rather than something that's already being charged. Let, let me play devil's advocate for a second because you and I both in ni- 1989, and you more than me, but we were on the well, which was kind of um, predictive of this community right, right, right. that became the World Wide Web. So uh, I was on there every day. I was obsessed. And or 1991, rather. Uh, and what I'm curious about is the internet felt that way initially, like it wasn't commercial, mm-hmm. and a lot of us were making websites for almost. We thought it was a new artistic medium, and of course, it quickly became commercial. And I think then people quickly learned, oh, this concept of things that are huge but free, we can start selling things on it. So, do you think that still applies, like, or do you think people now are so quick to commercialize things? I definitely think it's much ha- happening much faster, that there is much more of this inertia and momentum to take things and commercialize them. But it's still true that if you want to see what's going to happen, look to where things are free. I don't think they're going to be remain free for as long as they used to, but nonetheless, um, look to where people are doing things for a hobby. Look to where they're doing things, where they're wasting time, where they're where they're not really making money, because that is really going to be the future and um, 
not the only place, but that's almost guaranteed to be. What do you, what do you think is an example right now? So, um, you know, I would I would look to things like um, I don't know weird cosplay, right? You know, people dressing up for something. You know, that's that's sort of like that's that's not a business. That's that's but maybe it is. I mean, there, there's something people are giving a lot of. Where do people put a lot of energy into something, even if there's no money involved? So where are people putting energy right now? Um, they're putting it into. Uh, um, you know, taking photos on Instagram. Hmm. Okay, I mean, so Instagram, I don't know if it's really making money yet. It's probably not making no, money. No, but there are some people on Instagram making millions. Right, right. And so, and so they're they're devoting a lot of, of their time and energy into that. So so that is potentially something that will uh, eventually become big business. Or at least, again, I'm not even suggesting it's all become business, but that's going to be where the future is. And so this is idea of... Um, um, where where are people spending a lot of time? Maybe is a better way to say. It. Well, like like for instance, a game like Minecraft. A lot of kids right, right. Do, do are entire world builders, and of course for free. And now there are some people monetizing it, but most kids. Well, I think Microsoft don't. bought it. Yeah, exactly. So right, the right, game right. they bought, the platform right, right, they bought, right, right. but now kids themselves right. are either choosing to build these huge worlds and either make money right, right, or right, not. Right. But that could really be related to future virtual reality worlds or whatever. Right. And it's not just, again, we're talking more in terms of commercial terms, but I, what I'm just trying to say is that where are people putting a lot of time that, that with, in which they're not asking for compensation back? That the fact that they're putting a lot of time means that that's going to be more valuable into the future. I wonder if like self-publishing falls into that category. They could, they could. Um, but just just look at someone's life and where they're where they're putting time and putting effort or energy and thinking about things, and that is likely to be something that is going to continue to grow. Okay, so the next one is attention wastage. Yeah. So I guess that's like where are people, you know, a, a great example is like reality TV that started out as nothing, but of course people were wasting their attention right, right, right. Over, more and more, right? and now it's like huge, entire networks based on just reality TV. Right, or or the, the great example of games, people just, uh, kids spending time on Dungeons and Dragons. Yeah. That was a real indicator of where things were going. Of course, that was Lord of the Rings and almost every other video game came out of that kind of kids in the basements playing enormous amounts of time with this, wasting it in a certain sense. I mean, there, there was nothing productive about it. Um, people, uh, GIFs, uh, GIFs, whatever you want to call it, GIFs, GIFs, those little looping things, yeah. like, that is the future in many, in many ways. That's, that's a whole new medium. That's a whole new genre. There are going to be entire things built around this couple second little loops of things. People just, that's a waste of time. But that in in that it's some seed of where we're going to go. Hmm. Okay, so new slang. I find that language will often lead where we're going, and so slang is invented often because there's no ordinary words to cover what has just been invented or what's happening. Doxing, all right. Doxing is a slang for hackers, meaning you you kind of out somebody's information. Um, there's. Oh, I, I hadn't heard that one. Yeah, D-O-X. Huh. So, so um, I think it means kind of like revealing their documents or something. And the um, wherever, sli- wherever there's a lot of slang, that means that there's a kind of like there's like a little friction along the tectonic plates that are moving, and there's no words that we have to indicate all these things coming. So there's lots of slang. So you want to go where there's lots of slang because that indicates there's a frontier where things are really changing very fast. Yeah, that's uh, 
I'm trying to think of other areas. Uh, um, there's lots of, like in the sexual frontiers, there's lots of slang. In, in um, subcultures often have slang music. Um, right, so I guess like in the beginnings of hip-hop, rap, hip-hop for instance, Exactly, yeah. right. There was a lot of slang. And that became this huge multi-billion huge, dollar exactly, industry. Exactly, right, right. And so wh- where, where there's kind of a lot of slang emerging, maybe it's going to be in, um, I don't know, it could be like in architecture or weapons, uh, weapons or uh, Remi- sports. Reminds me, I don't know if you read the science fiction book Ready Player One by Ernest Oh, I have, Clark. oh, I have. Excellent book. And... Uh, it reminds me of all the slang again in virtual reality that was used in that book. Right, right. So, so I think we're really going to see a lot of slang in virtual reality when it comes up because there's going to be new concepts and new vocabulary necessary to even describe these experiences and make the distinctions between one and another. And that would be really an indicator that that's going to be even bigger in the future. So these, again, are all ways to sort of not necessarily predict the future, but to say what is happening now that could kind of point the direction of the future. Right. These are actually maybe ways to indicate the areas in which the future is going to erupt first. So if you take the Bill Gibson famous line that the future has arrived, it's just unevenly distributed. Mm. So if you want to see where the future has already arrived, this is where you're going to look. So next one is uh, extrapolations. Yeah, so the common... The, the, the most common and brute force way of it kind of understanding where things are is you say, you just say, well, if things continue this way, and what would happen if you, you know, times it by 10, you just extrapolation. These are often wrong, but they're often very useful in, in the same way. So it's like um, um, cell phones. You can kind of say, well, if we extrapolate the shrinking of them, they'll get to some size and everybody will have one. That seems impossible, but it's, it was a straight extrapolation. I mean, what we, it's not, you have to add other things because just the fact that they were really small and everybody had one was not sufficient to describe what actually happened when everybody had them. So, but that did happen. So this applies particularly to exponential technology. So for instance, let's say biotech or you know, we, you, you've debated back and forth whether AI is an exponential right, technology, right. but certainly computers were, um, 3D printing is, uh, and so robotics is. So, so I wonder um, if it's not an exponential technology, if it, is it easier or harder to extrapolate? I'm, I'm talking about extrapolations of all, all kinds. So you could say like, well, you know, it seems as if over time clothes get less or less and less ornate. They become simpler and simpler. So you say, well, in the future, they're going to become like Star Trek. They'll be really, really simple. Mm-hmm. We'll just wear T-shirts and underpants mm-hmm. or whatever it is. And so that's an extrapolation. Uh, it's nothing about exponential growth. It's just saying, given where things are going. So, so... Given the amount of meat, maybe if we extrapolate uh, people giving up meat, maybe you know in two hundred years nobody eats animals. How often though do things kind of ha- also have reversion to the mean? So you know you had bell bottoms in the seventies. You can't really extrapolate that because we eliminated <laughs> it. <laughs> so yeah, bigger, bigger bell bottoms. Right. Um, yeah, I, I think all these things have to be done together. I mean, uh, you can't just do one of them. That's what I'm saying. Extrapolations are limited. The, the, as I said, you don't get the full story of what the cell, the smartphone is just by extrapolation, but you can get a lot of it. So right. this is just part of the story. Right. So, so for instance, um, with computer screens, you see them getting thinner and thinner, and potentially they could be flexible, flexible, and, or right, right. pieces of paper, or right, something exactly. I could fold up and put in my pocket. Right. Or so, or you see that the the TV screens get bigger and bigger, and so eventually they cover the side of the building. That's right. just an extrapolation, but that's actually happened in China. Right. If you look at the cities, they're just huge TV screens. Or every building. Here in Times we're sitting in Times Times Square. Square, Right, right. The billboards are. So so you just keep going and going. So every building is covered. That's an extrapolation. Yeah. 
And so, in some senses, it can be nonsense, but there also can be a lot that's true about it. Um, next one, white spaces. I don't know what that means. So, white spaces is a term they use in science talking about a blank. And it's particularly a blank that's between two known entities. And so, a white space would be like if you you have a whole bunch of discoveries over here about um, you know biotech, and there's another discovery here that's about genetics. Um, if you map these things kind of in a conceptual space, there will be areas that are between the two which there's nothing. There's a white space between the two. And those white spaces will get filled up with knowledge and discoveries. And so it's a way of kind of mapping where there should be something, some some possible variant, given the fact that everything around it is filled, but there's nothing there. And so... Would you say, like, for instance... Um, Let's just take something random, like you had the internet on one side, right. and you had matchmaking services, and then suddenly you had online dating sites. Right, exactly. So this is kind of like an idea sex sort of thing, where right, right. you take two disparate things and find where's the where's the right, middle. Right, right, right. Where, where it's an example where it might be happening right now that we're just starting to see something that's that the space is filling up. Well, one of the spaces is computation or AI in everything. So you take you take uh, you take computers, kind of what, like what you, you suggested, and you take uh, knitting. It's like, what's in between computers and knitting? Well, there's something weird or wonderful, maybe, where you have um, uh, robots that are making new kind of stitches that haven't existed before. Computational knitting. Or, or actually, you can make, you can say um, CAD designs for knits and then 3D printing right. knitted exactly. gloves right, or whatever. Right, right, right. And so, if you do that, even within science or technology, it's it's it's. Um, uh, we're kind of it's a possibility space, and we're filling it out. And so you you're looking for the next uh, in terms of the Santa Fe Institute, you're looking for the next adjacent area to fill. So uh, and it has to be a place that's empty right now. So all the empty places get filled with new ideas. And so what you want to find is well, okay, there's um, uh, let's see, there's Amish in America, and they depend on the fact that there's high tech companies, high tech culture that supports the Amish, there should be Amish in Japan, or there should be Amish in Israel, or there should be Amish somewhere else. And so that's a kind of like a, a white space, this kind of uh, neo-Luddite response culture to the high-tech culture. That's a white space that exists right now, and you can kind of say, well, there's in the future going to be some kind of subculture that will reject technology and uh, have it figured out and live very well. And they'll be dependent on the technological culture to survive. So... A white space, that's the white space that you could point to and say that's that, that's going to happen. I just want to mention the the, um, the uh, adjacent possible right. that you mentioned. Uh, I'm a big fan of Stephen Johnson's book, mm-hmm. Where uh, Ideas Come From, and he mentions that idea mm-hmm. that you kind of have this, you can't go too far out right. with what's possible. Uh, you kind of have to find, like, like Leonardo da Vinci was drawing planes, but it still needed 500 more years to actually make planes. But the adjacent possible might have been painting the Mona Lisa or some of his other right, right. contraptions that he made. Right. So, so in, in fact, another way of saying that is like being too early is almost as bad as being too late in terms of success. You can't be seven jumps ahead. You have to be only one jump ahead. Reminds me of that doctor in the 1800s. I forget his name. Um, I guess it was in Germany or England. Um, he basically discovered that washing hands before... Right. in London. Yeah, yeah, okay, so washing hands before delivering babies, mm-hmm. particularly if you were just dealing with a dead body, it's right. a good idea. Right. And everybody, for some reason, 
rejected him so much. I think he ended up in a mental institution. Like he right, just right. went crazy from this. And so was he too far out or yeah. was he dealing with the adjacent possible? No, I think he, he in the beginning, he was too far out. And so was uh, Gregor Mendel, who basically kind of discovered uh, uh, genes and um, it was too far ahead. Mm. Nobody had any concepts of it. They couldn't even deal with it. Even Darwin didn't really appreciate it. Mm. And so... Um, so his his work was bypassed and only to be rediscovered later on. And I think um, uh, there, there are lots of examples where people are, are three or four steps ahead and they're just not appreciated because what's really needed is always just that one next step. And and um, we kind of build our civilization that way, one step at a time. Yeah. No, it's a... Uh, have you read um, Evolution's Everything by Matt Ridley? Yes. Yeah, right, that, right. that's an interesting one where he basically kind of describes in every area of life how it follows the rules of evolution. Right. Um and I wrote a whole book called What Technology Wants, which, which does the same thing, which says that, that technology is basically an extension and acceleration of the same evolutionary process that happens in life. That it's basically what runs through life, and now we're speeding it up and extending it beyond, out of the things that, that carbon can make into other the realm of the technium. Is that because when ideas, let's call it, let's say ideas mate, the generations are much more frequent now? Yes. Because we're allowed to test things much more easily on computers and so on. Right, because there's a, there's a process. I mean, Darwinian natural selection is a very, very slow process, but now we have directed evolution. We're directing it, mm. and so you can go a lot faster. Mm. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, unthinkables. So unthinkables is something that Brian Eno and I, the, the, the rock musician composer, came up with, which is, um, again, this is not really predicting directly, but it's looking at the places where new things and future come from. And that was is to take something that seemed completely unthinkable or unacceptable or unbelievable, and then to conjure with it to try to make it into kind of, you know, uh, something that seemed plausible. So, like, um, and we were just, we, it was... An, Inventive imagination exercise, but a lot of the things in there um, would yield fruit. So, so it was a it was a method to try to make some observations about where things were going. So, an example might be um, uh, okay. Um, the 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 great thing about barbecue and roasted meat is that you know that, that black stuff. That black stuff is actually carcinogenic. Highly right. carcinogenic. Which, by the way, I love it. Like, if you have, exactly right. if you burn bacon, <laughs> exactly. that is like food from the gods. But that's carcinogenic, and so the unthinkable would be that you that, that they we ban barbecue, right? right. The barbecue's banned, and you have all these little, you know, speakeasy barbecues <laughs> happening, whatever it is. But so it's it's like it's this idea of of taking something that okay is obvious, and then just saying, well, by logic. Um, it's unthinkable, but by logic, if it's really carcinogenic, then at some point it's going to be outlawed. Or maybe someone will come up with a technology to make it not carcinogenic. Exactly right. So you can start playing with these ideas. You can start playing with these ideas of taking something that seemed outrageous, and what you're doing is you're kind of playing with the logic and extrapolating logic to some absurd extreme, but then there is some truth in that, and that looking at the way things are going, look, okay, if we ban all things that are bad for us, and if that's really bad for us, then they, we have to ban barbecue. But it seems unthinkable. Right. And then what, what would happen? What would the laws be? How would you get there? What would be the reaction? And then you can kind of come up with something like that. Well, I guess to some extent, driverless cars were unthinkable exactly. a few years ago. And now we're starting to think, well, what do the, what do the roads look like? Right, what right, does right, the right. workforce look like? You know, you have to start solving these problems. And in solving those problems, your whole businesses could, could, 
come out as a result. Right. And so one of the ways you do unthinkable, and I don't forget if I get to this, is that basically you're, you're challenging something that everybody knows. You say, well, everybody knows this. And so, well, what if that wasn't true? Like, for instance, Moore's Law is coming right now. Moore's Law. So well, what happens if, there, if Moore's Law stopped? Meaning if computers stopped doubling in power every year. Or, or, or and getting uh, cheaper every year. Mm. What if that stopped? That would be incredibly disruptive. That would just change everything. Right. Uh, because, I mean, it's like, if it never got any better, and, the, you know, it's like, what's this? <laughs> well, <laughs> let me ask you about that, because, like, you know, Apple just announced that their iPhone sales are going, to, are going yeah, down yeah, for the yeah. first time in a quarter ever. So I sort of feel like, and this is, a, this is maybe the most stupid, naive thing to say, but I sort of feel like computers, at least for personal use, are done. Unthinkable. <laughs> right. Because, like, I don't need to upgrade my laptop anymore. Right, I just right, use right, it to right. surf the internet. So I don't right, need, right, like, you know, anything to be faster. Right, I don't need, right, right, maybe right. I just need battery life to be longer. So the right, only right. thing that I focus on now when I buy a computer is how long battery right, life right, is. Right, right, right. You know, and, and the same thing with phones. Like, I don't really. I didn't really upgrade yeah, my yeah. phone this year for the first time ever because the phone is good enough. I can right, do right. anything I want with the phone now. No, I think you're right, and that would be unthinkable. But I think that's right. I think the computers have stopped, phones have stopped. What? But but there's other things coming. Virtual reality, right? That's just starting. Well, and you know, I don't want to get to that. But think about even the internet itself. I sort of feel like since 1994, or ni- let's say even say yeah. 1997, the technology that kind of powers the web, like, you know, HTML, JavaScript, Java, all these things that kind of sit on the layers mm-hmm. above, uh, you know, the web, uh, aren't really, they haven't really improved since 1997. There's not really been any need to improve them. Like, we're, we're basically, Twitter uses the same technology. I could have, anybody could have built Twitter in 1997, essentially. Right, right. Yeah, and I, th- I think in that, that layer, things haven't really improved that much, but I think we've added this other layer. The social layer did not exist then, right. then, and that's been this huge leap forward. And so I think... Um, so ways of using the platform have improved, right, right, but, but the technology but, hasn't. Right. I, I think uh, I'm of the belief, and I'm not the only one, who, who thinks that you know, in a thousand years from now, or maybe at least a hundred years from now, they'll still be running IP, TCIP, the basic protocol of the internet, will still be running. Right. And it's clear, that's a little bit like evolution, though, which takes these processes... And it doesn't really change them. It just builds on top. Sure, so like the parts of our brain ATCP, existed yeah, exactly. a billion years ago. Or even the ATP cycle in your cells, it hasn't changed for millions and millions of right. years. It's still going. And so the, your reptilian brain is still there. Right. It sometimes comes out, but it's actually, it's still there. That, that kind of rudimentary thinking and control has not been replaced because it works. And I think the same thing with the internet. It works. It's going to be there. As kludgy as it was, it was not perfect, but it works good enough. And in a thousand years from now, it'll still be running. Yeah, no, I I believe that. I mean, when it first, when the web first started coming around, what essentially happened on a technical level was that it reduced the need for any company to build their own networking protocol for all of their applications. So it made programming just a thousand times easier, which allowed right, right, all right. these websites to develop. Exactly. But then it didn't really you didn't really need it for anything else. Like it doesn't create anything else. Right. So right. Um, scenarios. Scenarios is actually one of the most important things one can learn about. Predicting, and it says very simply that you can't make a prediction, but that you can make a, you can scribe an outline of what's plausible. So it's like saying we we can't tell really exactly what's going to happen in the future, but we know one thing about it, and that is that it has to be plausible. Okay, so if you can actually describe 
the outline of everything that's plausible in the future, then that whatever happens has to happen within that circle of plausibility. So, so what's an example? Like if I can say, okay, within 10 years, people are going to live to be a thousand years old. That's probably implausible. Right, right. So what would be, but you, we don't really know that for a hundred percent, but we know that let's say 99%. Right, right. So what's an example of something that's plausible, but just at the edge? Well, um, you, you could say, uh, you know, it's like um, flying cars. Yeah. So we have flying cars in a hundred years. Well, it's possible because we have these hovercrafts, uh, these drones now that, that that can move a person. But if you said like um, uh, time travel, um, that's probably implausible. I mean, it's possible, but it's not plausible, just given what we know about physics. So um, uh, if you were to say like, you know, you're talking about how long people live, or if you could say, um, if, if your scenario required, if you had a scenario that... Uh, um, the the China, U.S. and the Russia disappear as as countries, and everything's broken up. That's not really plausible. It's possible, but it's not really plausible. But you you could push something talking about things where you know maybe one of those countries um, collapses or or whatever. Um, and then what you want to do is you want to. Uh, but the whole thing of the scenario is that you don't make a single one. Is that you are kind of probing like the corners, the four corners of what is possible with different cohesive stories that are extreme and yet work together, meaning that there's, there's there's a few variables that would drive it into one or other corner. And so you have a coherent set of predictions that are plausible, they're just at the edge of plausibility, and that they form sort of a boundary around which the future will happen inside those. And so the whole exercise has one goal, which is so that you aren't surprised by the future. In some ways, you kind of, you you rehearsed in your mind by these scenarios, in some ways, what could possibly happen, knowing that what happened will be sort of within that framework. So it's like, um, um, and, and by not being surprised, meaning that then, then you could think about, well, what if, if if this scenario happened, what would we, what, what would I do? If this scenario over here in the same set happened, what would I do? And so you go through all the, you rehearse all the extreme corners, knowing that whatever happened will happen within them. So you kind of have already re rehearsed for what will happen. So that's interesting. So let's take like driverless cars. Right. So it's plausible that within 10, 15, 20 years, all the cars will be driverless, which means 90% of the automobile industry might be out of work at that point. And so, so this is now replacing some pieces on the corners. Right, you, you might say, well, all cars are driverless. Another scenario might be, well, you know, 50% of them are. Another one might be, well, like, you know, there's only a few specialized permits, you know, it's like long distant trucks. Mm -hmm. Or another one might be, um, there is, uh, um, I don't know, you could make another scenario where um, only the ones in China are or something mm -hmm. in the U.S., there's none in the U.S. at all. So, so you can kind of make this set. So those are all kind of plausible, all very different. And you would rehearse, like, what what would the future be like if that one were every, every car was driverless? What would happen if only 50%? What would happen if very few of them? And then if you were a car company, then you go you rehearse through all those, knowing that the future has to be somewhere in between. But what was not plausible would be, well, um, we don't have any cars at all. Right. There are no cars. Or that... Um, we teleport everywhere, or that um, uh, you know um, every there, there's no individual cars; they're all just trains, or it's all public transportation. So, so 
within within this plausible set, it's very useful because you aren't really trying to stake your future on just one outcome. You're actually it's a it's a set that's that's comprehensive and related to each other with a few variables that change. And then you can kind of see which way things are drifting over time and say, ah, we recognize the scenario. We've rehearsed this when we we know that it's going to go in that direction. Well, it's interesting because, you know, thinking of cars some more, like General Motors just invested $500 million in Lyft. So rather than $500 million in a new, you know, process for making cars, mm -hmm. they invested in the sharing economy. So they're making a bet that whether there's cars are with drivers or driverless, they're still going to they're still going to grow with the growth of, you know, right. transportation. And they're probably also making multiple bets. They probably are right. investing into, you know, driverless technology. They're probably making bets other places if they were smart. Right. And 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 so what the scenarios do is is to help you rehearse and not be surprised by what happens. Mm. I should do that in my relationships more often. <laughs> <laughs> Reverse time machines. That sounds like a good one. Reverse time machine is something we would um, use at Wired when we were trying to um, make covers for the Wired stories. And that would be um, the whole premise of Wired, the whole uh, sensibility was to make a magazine that seemed like it had been mailed from the future. And so one of the things I would say is like, you know, imagine I, I, I went to the future and I came back and I said, oh my gosh, um, you know, um, they, they they have um, they they have these um, they have personalized medicine pills. Everybody takes a pill; it's just for them. You know, whatever it is. And so, then you would say, "Well, how would you get there from here? Hmm. What would it take to arrive there?" If, if I say, "Well, in the year twenty thirty, they have this. They have this pill that everybody takes. It's just one pill you take once a day. It's it's, um, it's uh, refined and customized to you. You use quantified self-tracking. And so it's like, well, how do we get there from here? If you know what the future was and you knew for sure that there has to be some path. And so um, that can force some way of seeing how you get there from here, even though it may not seem obvious. You say, well, I, we know for sure that it happened, so there must be some way in which these th things will lay out. And then therefore we can kind of see where things are going right now. Let's stop to take a quick break. We'll be right back. I love the idea of a book called Reverse Time Machines. Yeah, right, and you yeah. just pick like 15 different things, like, you know, like personalized pills, right, right, right. and then completely track exactly. where we are now and how we could potentially, like all right, the branches right, right, of how right, we can right, get to there. Right, right exactly. So, because then that could lead to people thinking about, you know, hundreds of different possible businesses. Exactly. Or educations or training or whatever. Right, right exactly. And so, um, and, and, and the exercise is worth doing because right now sometimes it seems possible, impossible, but then if you actually are forced to, to make that pathway, you realize, oh, it's actually not so impossible. And I think this is actually what Larry Page and Elon Musk are very good at. Hyperloop trains or, you know, sending somebody to Mars in a, on a commercial enterprise. It's like, that seems really implausible. But if you actually reverse it, if he says, okay, I went to the future. I think maybe Elon did this. I think he went to the future and he came back. He went to, you know, 2030, and he realized that there was private enterprises sending people to Mars. He said, how did they do that? They must have started here. And, he, and then he just did what, what that would take. Yeah, that's interesting. So, um, okay, so listen to technology. So the idea of listening to technology, which is um, a little bit what the book The Inevitable is about, um, was saying, um, I think there are certain biases in every technology that, 
makes certain human uses of it more likely than others. And a great example, my, my kind of canonical example, is copying. So the internet is the world's largest copy machine. Anything that touches it is going to be copied. You can't stop the copies. Right. Copies flow. And there are lots of music and the movie industries all try to prohibit copying. You can't because there is a bias. The technology wants to copy. Okay? So you listen to the technology and see what it's doing and it says, it wants to copy. You, you don't want to fight against that. You want to work with that. You're listening to what the technology is saying. It wants to copy. And same thing with... Uh, you know, tracking or, or like privacy. Privacy. There's an enormous. You can't. The internet gets as the internet gets larger and larger with the Internet of Things. There's essentially less and less privacy, and that that right. trend can't be banned. It can't be stopped. We have to work with. We have to, what I say, we have to civilize it. We we have to kind of domesticate it, work with it, engage it, work with it. We can't prohibit it. Mm-hmm. And so, I'm saying, listen to the technology. What is the technology of you know, like human cloning? It's inevitable. We already. I mean. We ha- we have um, we have um, s- um, parallel cloning. They're called twins. We're we're very comfortable with that. So, um, what what are some of the other things? Whether in DNA or genetics or in chemistry, that um, you want to listen to what it, what the biases in that technology are, then pay attention to them because that's go- they're going to it's going to lean in that direction, and that will be the future direction. Yeah, interesting. So, what's what's some other uh... What's some other areas where we should be listening to the technology? What are what are a couple of things that are gonna let's get a sneak peek of the inevitable? <laughs> yeah, right, We're gonna talk right. about it again in a future podcast. What are, right, right. what are some inevitable uh, technological? Well, you forces? mentioned you mentioned tracking, and I think that's something that's inevitable. There's gonna be more of it. We're gonna track ourselves with Fitbits and stuff. We're gonna track our friends. We're gonna track our family. We're each, we're gonna track each other through companies, socially, governments. And so I've already hacked into all my friends' computers, <laughs> and I track them pretty well, and my daughters, everything. So and then, nothing and, gets by me. Right. We're actually used to this, by the way. I think the reason why we don't, aren't going to reject it is because for hundreds of thousands, if not millions of years, we humans evolved in co- co- covalence, what I call covalence, tracking each other in small clans. Right. We're, and, and so... The, the the reason why that's acceptable or why we were comfortable with it was because it was co because if you watched me and I watched you I knew what you saw and I could see you the our uncomfort now comes because there's an asymmetry because they are watching us and we don't have power over what they see what they do with the information we get no benefit we can't correct it and so part of what the tracking has to do is it has to restore some of that symmetry. I guess part of it is, I mean, it reminds me of kind of the sort of phrase carbon footprint in environmental right, technology, right. but it's almost like your your public footprint on media. So how much, if you don't, if you never sent out emails, you never used the phone, and you stayed in your house all day, you would essentially have no public footprint. Um, but, but, in, but in general, we... We send out emails. We look at Instagram photos. We uh, we walk outside. We drive around in, a, in computerized right, right, cars right. that are constantly being tracked by the car companies. So so our public footprints are in general really large. So someone who's concerned about privacy, maybe there's some meter uh, that could tell you what your public footprint is. Yeah, there there could be, and 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 the the, the price for uh, the the cost of of not having a footprint is that you're going to be treated as a number. If you want to be, if you want to have personalization, customization, you want people to treat you as an individual. You have to become transparent. You have to open up yourself. So, if you want to remain hidden, then you will be treated as a as a generic number, um, and that may be acceptable for some people. 
But if you want to be treated in a personal way, if you want companies to treat you personally, you have to let the companies know about you. If you want your neighbors to treat you as an individual, you have to let them know about you. And so that's that's the slider. The slider is two parts. Is one is is the privacy, the other one is the customization or generic. Form. Yeah, it's in, it's interesting because I guess the gut reaction is, oh, I want to be private. But at the same time, you don't want to have like, you know, if you're a guy, you don't necessarily want to have ads for right. I don't know baby toys right, and right. Uh, uh, you want to have ads right, right, that are right. personalized to you that you can use that might be oh I never thought of that I'm going to buy it right. so so, so w- the surprise has been that every chance we give people to push that slider is they they move it in the direction of personalization and less privacy so the way I say it is that vanity trumps privacy yeah it's interesting so although, you know, it's been funny, like on um, things like dating sites, you, you know, they're always private, they're always right, anonymous. Right, right. There's a lot of parts of the internet where it's still, you know, privacy is very much a, a, a part of the fabric of what's going on. And, and I think we have to have, we have to allow that. I think we need to have anonymity as, or, or the, the possibility of it, but I think it has to be kept very, very small. Hmm. Because in every, every institution that I know of, from online to government, where uh, citizens are anonymous, that's the worst behavior. I mean, mm. it's like, it's terrible. Yeah, that's, that's a really good the, point. All the trolling happens is because it's anonymous or pseudonymous. And that's so, a really good point. The more anonymous, the more hateful in some way. Right. So so you have to have a, I call it a rare earth metal. Mm. So a rare earth metal like cadmium is absolutely essential to your health. You need, but if too much of it will poison you really fast. So you need very, very small doses, and the same with anonymity is we need to have it for whistleblowers, for political persecution. You have to have that option. But you want to keep it to an absolute minimum in really small doses. Hmm. So you can't outlaw it, but you want to you want to keep it to a minimum. So, okay, um, repeat patterns. Yeah, I think that's just a general um, looking at uh, the fact that, you know, as they say, history doesn't repeat. It kind of rhymes a little bit. So you're looking for things that um, come up again and again, and the fact that things go in cycles, um, you know, talking about bell bottoms, bell bottoms will be back. That's all I can say, right? I can't believe it. I don't believe it. At some point. <laughs> all right. You know, 20, the year. My grandchildren. 21, no, no, yeah. no, beyond. Yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know so, so well, things, think, the patterns seem to repeat themselves often. Um, I'm a big believer, and there's a book, uh, Called the I think fourth fourth generation by um, Strauss and Howe, and they talked about in American um, culture that there was this really remarkable generational uh, cycle of four generations, and then with each generation sort of responding to the previous one, the silent generation following um, you know a great generation following a silent generation, and, and baby so boom. baby boomers, and then our the millennials. And that, that that those patterns actually kind of were there was a pattern of of, of one uh, generation responding not just to the previous generation but if the previous two in a certain sense and so um, looking for those kind of generational patterns or patterns over time I think um, the what happens in the future is very much bound but not entirely by what's happened in the past so it's a way of saying that some of the best Futurists are good historians. It's very interesting because it remind the repeat patterns concept reminds me of how businesses are spread geographically. So someone might build a search engine 
Google in the US and then you have a search engine built in Russia and then a search engine built in China and and so on. So that seems to happen geographically. I'm wondering how it happens over time. Now, we had social networks dating from, let's say, Tripod Mm -hmm. and GeoCities in the 90s and now we had, then we had, you know, Friendster, MySpace, Facebook. So we we saw social networks evolve. Um, But now social networks seem to be done. Like Facebook has spread over the world. There probably won't be a next Facebook. If anything, Facebook will be the next Facebook with virtual reality and so on. I think there definitely will be another Facebook hmm. that'll be in virtual reality, and I don't think it'll be Facebook who does it. I'd be very surprised if they do. Hmm. I'd be astounded if Facebook was successful in doing that. They will try, but my my bets would be that um, they're they're too bound by their current success. I mean, the, the, you know. It's interesting because then we're using the concept that you mentioned earlier of white spaces. So there's going to be right, right. virtual reality, might even be on Facebook VR right, right, sets. Right. But then someone will come up and say, "Okay, what's the social media within exactly. virtual reality?" And it's not going to be the same and have slightly different laws, slightly different economics. And I don't. I, I just feel that his, if history is any gauge, Facebook would not be the ones. They might try it first, but they're not going to be the ones to really figure it out. Interesting. So um, second order effects. All these, all these things have really cool names because you can't actually figure out what they are immediately. So it's worth, well, worth that's, asking. That's you. My, my wired headline writer. Um, right. Second generation. Okay, so this was actually came from a very famous science fiction author, Arthur C. Clarke. I don't think he named it that. I named it that, but his example. He said that, you know, when there was the very beginnings of cars, uh, there were horseless carriages. And so, and so, so cars were kind of very easy to imagine. You take, you know, a carriage with a horse, and you just have it do it automatically. He said, um, and so that that was the first order um, invention. He said, but the real the real genius of really understanding cars was to look at their second order, which was that they would have parking problems, hmm. that there would be traffic jams, they'd have drive in, that you'd have drive in um, movie theaters and drive in restaurants. Well, it's it's interesting. Again, that reminds me of Facebook. So there's one Facebook, but then a hundred companies or a thousand companies started around, like, let's say, Facebook advertising or helping brands deal with Facebook and so on. So there's all these ancillary businesses that start off with one big platform. So Cars was the platform, but then there's a billion businesses around that platform. Right, or you could say there's the Internet, but then there's Wikipedia. Right. I mean, the Internet, you could kind of imagine would happen. I mean, there was a couple people, Paul Ocelot in France, who kind of imagined this hypertext or or, um, uh, Vanderbilt Bush, who kind of did Memorix, which is all documents were connected. But imagining Wikipedia, that was a second order effect. Right. And then the third order might be, okay, you're a restaurant. I could help for $100 a month. I'll write your Wikipedia page and maintain yes. it for you. Yeah, so Wikipedia like scams. Third. That would be the right. third one. Right. And so I think, I think the, the, real, the, the real challenge, but the real genius would be being able to think about the second order effects. Okay, VR. Sure. They're going to be VR. You put the goggles on, ready player one, you see that. But what are the... Second order effects. How does that, how does that impact um, you know I don't know uh, uh, schools or or churches or whatever. And so it's it's imagining that 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 kind of second order cultural effect. And one of the best ways to kind of imagine it, it's a very easy trick, which is says what happens if it's ubiquitous. What happens if everybody has it? But let me ask you this, and this is related to we we actually have an, uh, another one here, but I, but I'm curious now. Um, Let's say I'm sitting in my cubicle and I'm hearing about all these great techniques to uh, come up with the future. I think back, and you've written about this, are we too late? And and you you mentioned how, what if we were in 1985, like 30 years ago, it was obviously the best time to be an entrepreneur in the computer and the internet space because you're starting from scratch. 
Now, I, and you say it's people in 2045 will look back on now and say 2015 or 2014 was the best time to be an entrepreneur. But I'm not so sure because take virtual reality as an example. It seems to me, just wrapping my head around it, it's very complicated to build, at, at least now thinking about it, it's very complicated to think about how I would build a business inside the virtual reality framework. Whereas the internet, again, was ultimately very easy to make a website. Uh, even at the very beginning, it was very easy to make a website, you know, if you knew the proper tools. So I wonder if things are going to be as easy uh, going forward for I, entrepreneurs. I, yeah. Um, I think they're easier because while it, it is true that it's harder to make a website, or a successful website. I mean, everybody can make a website, but to make one that gets some attention is more and more difficult. Um, we kind of agreed that websites are over. Like, who cares about them? Right, it's true. And, 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 the and, personalized and, website is probably dead because we have Facebook pages, Medium pages, right, LinkedIn pages. It's just like, yeah, it, it's maybe harder now to make a, a, a PC that's going to be successful. But they're over. Who cares? All, all the players have already established and you're not going to budge them. But, the most important inventions of the next 20 years have not been invented yet. And it's going to be really easy for anybody now to invent those. Will it be? Because again, yes, it we will have, be. because everybody saw the, the benefits of making a huge platform like the internet and then, and then another huge platform like the app store. Uh, what will be, you know, again, people then, the smartest people in the world rush in and try to make the next big thing. How, if I'm sitting in the cubicle, how can I say, oh, I'm going to do it? Okay, here's, here's what it is. In 20 years from now, people will look back. It's a, what we, it's, this is 20 years from now, it'll be 2036, right? Yeah. In 2036, there'll be two guys sitting in a, in a little room doing a podcast, whatever that is, and they'll be talking about the fact that, oh, if only we'd been live in 2016 because AI was coming on. And AI will revolutionize everything. Anything you can imagine, you can make it smarter. And there was just so many opportunities to take this amazing ability of, of having computers think things and do stuff that we could not imagine before. And it would have been so easy to make a billion dollars in figuring out how to do AI and VR together and whatever it was. And so they'll, they'll, just, they'll, they'll just be shocked that more people didn't kind of immediately run, just like we were sort of shocked that there weren't more people running onto the internet and, and occupying all those um, URLs, uh, domain names back then. Right, like, you, you had a guy from Wired uh, right. get McDonald's.com because right. McDonald's wasn't doing it. And I was trying to get ABC to take ABC because they wouldn't take it. And so, you know, it's like you would think, well, how come everybody wasn't doing that? And it's because they just didn't see it coming. And I think... There's a lot coming right now that's going to be very obvious in 20 years from now. And so those people who get in position to do it will make, it'll be very easy for them. What, what are one or two things that, that we haven't discussed? So we talked about tracking. Well, we talked a little about virtual reality. Well, for me, I think that there, there's, two, I think virtual reality is becoming a new platform. It will be the platform. People say, what's after mobile phones? It's going to be VR. And I think underneath all of this, enabling everything is going to be AI. I think AI is is bigger than the internet in terms of its consequence on culture. It's it's going to it's going to propel um, VR. I don't think VR is going to be really possible unless you have AI underneath it. In in what sense? Like what's a what's an example? Because I think AI is such a broad concept. Right. Because um, to, for for VR to really work, you want to be in uh, you want to be in an artificial world, and you want to have all your movements tracked so it knows that you are there. That process of tracking you and your movements and understanding what you're doing requires AI. 
Mm-hmm. It's not just a matter of having a bunch of sensors on it. It's actually being able to perceive you in this environment and understand what you're doing so, the, so you can then explore. And also, there are lots of tricks that VR has to do to, um, to fool you and require AI. And let me give you an example of like, um, if you want to kind of like um, run through a world um, that you walk a mile in it, well, there's kind of no room that's a mile long. But you can kind of fool yourself because a VR can display, um, when you think you're turning 90 degrees, it can only it may only turn uh, 80 degrees. Mm-hmm. And so you're actually kind of walking in a circle, but you think you're walking in a straight line or you're climbing over something mm-hmm. that is actually been there before, but an AI can kind of actually manipulate that environment to completely give you the illusion of an infinite space. That's an edge job for AI. And so AI will enable VR to be persuasive, to fool you into really having that uh, presence, artificial presence. And that's just one of the ways that AI, I think, is going to enable uh, the many things that we want to do with computers, understanding videos, understanding, it, it, it will understand things. And so that, imagine if you had the power of, I don't know, a million, a thousand people, a thousand employees who were ready to do whatever you wanted to do. And it wasn't going to cost you very much. That would be, that's a very, that's a very big power. You could do a lot of stuff with that. Right, so you're saying AI would be those thousand employees. Exactly. It's mm-hmm. interesting. So, so okay, so the other thing you have here is generalize this. Yeah, and I think this is one of the most hardest things to do. And, and this is uh, something, by the way, the robots are not going to do for a long time, which is um, to, to always ask the question, okay, um, we, we see, um, we see uh, the idea of Moore's Law was a generalization. So, um, Gordon Moore noticed that computers were getting a little cheaper every year. Um, so he said, what's the general principle here? And the pr- principle was, was Moore's Law, where there was exponential growth. We can look at um, uh, something and say, um, um, you know, uh, pe- people used to be rich and poor, and then um, someone noticed, well, there was uh, uh, um, people buying things that kings only used to buy, um, they, they were rich, and then eventually this idea of maybe people were shopping for things that they used to only rich people used to buy, and the generalization was that there was a middle class. And so um, it's a way of abstracting some of the changes that we see. So today we might look at um, uh, um, the way in which, um, I don't know, um, People were purchasing things, and um, then they needed to. Well, the, people might notice that there's lots of stuff in garages, um, and um, then they could maybe measure the size of people's homes, and and then you would try to extract out some general principle about um, the general trend of the size of homes, and what what did that mean? What what else was that also connected to? Was there was there a a, an abstraction about either people's relationship to the houses they lived in or to garages, um, and that you would then have something that you could then extrapolate into the future. Mm-hmm. So the, it's, it's, it's a, the, kind of looking at repeat patterns, but more it's, it's saying when something's happening, you're looking for some general principle that that's just a subclass of. You're saying, okay, people are buying, um, I don't know, uh, dolls of some sort. 
Is, is there anything about that purchase or that habit that can be generalized and shown as to be a signal of something even bigger? But do you think a lot of times, like take the dolls as an example. Right. Let's say there's some fad in dolls that comes out, then suddenly everybody jumps on that fad because they think it could be generalized, but it can't. Like the fad is over in a year or two. Right. And so, um, uh, and that's always the question. Is it just a fad or is it something general? So I don't think there's always a generalization, but that's something you're looking for. Because if there is a generalization, that's very powerful. Right. So, so... Um, so, like a great example is like solar-powered cells and the efficiency we right. get out of solar-powered cells. That seems to be one that's constantly improving, or or the length of battery life seems to be always improving. Yeah, that's a technical thing, but there's also cultural uh, generalizations as well. Um, um, you know, less violence every century, right, right. as a percentage of the human race. Like, like one of the things people are trying to decide right now is that there's our kids seem to to not drive as much or not to be as enamored of cars. Have mm-hmm. have kids stopped driving? Uh, young kids got the driver's license at an older age. They didn't seem to drive as much. Were they giving up cars? Hmm. Okay. If that was true, is there something else? Is about generally giving up things, moving from ownership to access, what I, what I talk about in this book, where you don't actually have to buy things because you have access to things, like Uber. That's, I, yeah. I'm a big fan of that. That's right, in your right. book. Right, exactly. So, so that is, that's an abstraction saying is, it's not just with one thing here. There's a general abstraction, which is that we're moving from ownership to access. Access is more valuable than ownership. That's, an, that's a generalization of a bunch of different other trends. Yeah, interesting. So, so again, let's say I'm sitting at home and I'm listening to this uh-huh. and I'm wondering... How can I take advantage of all these things these guys are talking about? Like, what should I do now, today, to to dip my toes into the the stream of the future that's coming along? Um. Well, first of all, I, I think um, you should embrace. P- part of what I'm saying is you want to embrace things rather than try and fight them. So, part of this idea of like, okay, work with things rather than try and um, run for them or prohibit them. So, so tracking is coming, AI is coming, robots are coming. Sharing economy sharing is coming. Sharing economy, access, or overshare. All these things are coming. And filtering, um, questioning, all this stuff is coming. So accept that it's coming and then work with it. We can mold it to make it work for us, but we're not going to be able to stop it or, or be afraid of it or be scared of it. It's something that we have to embrace. And the other thing is that the only the best way to change technology is by embracing it. Mm. Okay, you, It's by use that we figure out w- what things are good for. So um, Edison, who invented the phonograph, had no idea what a phonograph was going to be good for. He made a list of, of ideas, and his first idea was that it would be used to record the last words of the dead. That was his first idea. Oh, my gosh. That's then, fascinating, and then, and then he said, oh, wait, wait, wait. It could be used for sermons. You could pass sermons around. And then he had, you know, he could do this. And then and number 10, you could get music. You could do it for music. And so he had really no idea what it was. And it was only by use, people using it, that we kind of decided what it was for. And only by using these things do we kind of really get to change them and figure out what they're good for. And so I, I, so I think, first of all, I would say is engage with all this stuff to help help us determine what's good for and also to find out what it's best for. Well, um, what other than the book you have coming out, and we'll talk about this in a few yeah, months, yeah. it's coming out in June, The Inevitable, but what other what books right now inspire you and make you think about the future and so on? What are like four or five books? 
Well, actually, I'm reading a lot of science fiction, and we mentioned Ready Player One, which is a really excellent fun, book, fun, fun, fun book. I think it's being made into a film. Um, I, I, um, I'm reading um, uh, uh, Bill Gibson's new book, um, which is a little bit about VR as well. Um, I, I think um, nonfiction. Uh, there is. Um, the book I liked most is called Magic and Loss, which is by Virginia Heffernan. And oh, it's I don't know it. um, Magic and Loss. Right. And she takes a look at the internet as a kind of as if it was a piece of poetry, as if it was kind of like a waking dream, rather than technology, but as a as something that as a work of art. And I thought that was a really beautiful way to think about it. That rather than as this bunch of te- technological protocols and stuff, that actually this was kind of like a, a masterpiece of humanity. Mm-hmm. And um, that, I think, was for me, was was really helpful in thinking about it in a different way. And I think that's one of the most valuable things that, that, that you can do today, which is try to think differently. One of the disadvantages of being connected to everything all the time is that it becomes really difficult to have your own idea of something, to look at the world differently. And so that is the challenge in the world is to be um, connected but think different because those two are also always in tension with each other. It's very easy to think different if you're not connected to, to it. But then your thinking different doesn't really matter because it's not connected to everybody else. But if you're connected to everybody else, it's really hard to think different. And the real trick in the future will be to remain connected to everything and yet think about it differently. It's a real difficulty. And anybody who can do that, I think, is going to be wildly successful. Well, Kevin, I appreciate you so much coming on the podcast again. And I look forward to, on the next time we talk, talking about the inevitable. Um, So much stuff to absorb here. So thanks once again coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it. And also, for the first time we've met in person after all these years. And and I have to, I'm a mutual fan as well. Thank you for thinking different. I really appreciate your I try. I try. I'm inspired by all your posts. The Thousand True (laughs) Followers post, the, um, you had that post a few years ago, uh, you know, giving books away for free. Yeah. They can prove that they've read it. Exactly. Uh, I'm going to pay you to read my book. Right. Which I tried a version of it, actually, based on your post, uh. and it worked incredibly well. So yeah, yeah. With my book called uh, Choose Yourself, I basically said, if you can, I wanted people to pay because I wanted them, yeah. I, you, you value what you pay. Right, right. But I said I would refund it if you can prove to me you read the book. What happened? Well, it was great because... People, a, it generated a lot of reviews. That was obviously one yeah, way to yeah, prove yeah. Right, that they right, read it. Or they took photos and said, uh, you know, look, here's a photo of me reading it. So it created a lot of engagement with the book, one way or the other. Yeah, I can't really yeah. prove. that. I tried right, to think right, of right. the next technology right, right, to make right. them prove it, but I said, let's just play with it instead. And it worked very well. It became my, yeah, yeah, my yeah. best-reviewed book and probably my most widely read book. Well, I'm going to have to try my same trick, uh, that your version of that on this book here. Yeah, I look forward to it. Okay. Well, thanks again. Sure thing. Bye. Thank you. For more from James, check out the James Altucher Show on the Choose Yourself Network at jamesaltucher.com and get yourself on the free insiders list today. Hey, thanks for listening. Listen, I have a big favor to ask you and it will only take 30 seconds or less and it would mean a huge amount to me. If you like this podcast, please let me know. Please let the team I work with know. Please let my guests know. And you can do this easily by subscribing to the podcast probably the biggest favor you could do for me right now. And it's really simple. 
Just go to iTunes, search for The James Altucher Show, and click subscribe. Again, it will only take you 30 seconds or less, and if you subscribe now, it will really help me out a lot. Thanks again.